I was in dangerous situations. I mean, literally in West Africa being stopped at armed roadblocks all the time. And I knew, I grew to know how to have my, a copy of my passport with dollar bills tucked inside. Hello, welcome to Statement Mondays, where we explore how different women harness their identities at work. I'm your host, Natalie Munster. And if you need a reason to be bold today, here it is. Today is Statement Monday. I can't wait for you all to meet today's guest. Her name is Caroline Cuff, and she is one of the coolest people I've met so far through this podcast. She's held jobs in a number of different industries, which she'll talk about, the main ones being marketing and oil trading. And she went from secretary to one of the first female traders in the UK. In this interview, she talks about how her identity of being tough came to be, the attitudes that got her far in two different worlds where relationships and just knowing people are so important, and serendipity. Cool. Well, as always, stick around after the interview to hear some of my top takeaways on what Caroline talks about. Let's do it. Welcome, Caroline. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's such a pleasure, and I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing, Natalie. Thank you. So I'd love to start by just asking you to introduce yourself. Absolutely. So my name is Caroline Cuff. Right now I'm speaking to you from Cape Cod, but we pre-COVID would split our time between the UK and the US. I, in terms of jobs, have had a very eclectic path. So back in the 80s, I was the fourth woman oil trader in the UK, uh, definitely breaking a glass ceiling. I then moved to Australia with my husband because of his job. Uh, came back, did a year working for some very famous chefs in their restaurant group, ended wow. up my career really in publishing as a marketing planning director with a team of about 60 people, and then took uh, from that, did a consultancy in marketing. So I have really done a lot of things. There is no great thought out career path here. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I cannot <laughs> wait to dive into this <laughs> slew of, of different pieces that you've done in your life. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. I'm so excited for this interview. Uh, so <laughs> what would you say is your public identity? Well, I think, um, I, I think with most people, your public identity, your kind of persona changes and it's definitely morphed and it's morphed partly because I've grown and, and changed, but partly because my situation has grown. And so you can imagine in the 1980s, in a man's world, oil was for sure a man's world, um, shoulder pads were useful. So you talk about heels mm -hmm. being a little weapon. You know, shoulder pads were the weapon then. You know, you had to be tough. You had to be strong, resilient, thick-skinned. Mm -hmm. um, I was in dangerous situations. I mean, literally in West Africa being stopped at armed roadblocks all the time. And I knew I grew to know how to have my a copy of my passport with dollar bills tucked inside and so on. So oh, wow. <laughs> for that, you know, I appeared fearless and confident to the point that my boss's wife called me Caroline Tough, oh. uh, which I'm not sure was entirely a compliment. <laughs> um, and then I think after that, when we came to the US, I was sort of, that was, you know, with, with my old trading, I, I went in different countries, but in the US, I was the Brit at the time, and now we're a dime a dozen. It's nothing very special at all. But as a very dear oil trader friend of mine said to me, you know, your accent is the equivalent of an MBA. 
And he then followed it up by saying, I used to think you were really smart and, you know, esoteric. And now I know you really well. I know it's just your accent. (laughs) So my my public sort of person then became this Brit and Mm -hmm. people viewed Brits in a in in different ways mostly positive mm-hmm. certainly at the time and then i think it changed the public persona so in the 90s i went into the publishing world most of my colleagues were women actually the editors and the publishers were women I and mean, it's true that the board was entirely male at the time but i actually found it quite difficult um to sort of find a way through and the shoulder pads thing kind of went crazy. I mean, there were women filing copy from the delivery suite when they've just delivered their baby. Oh, and wow. from my point of view, it's like, that's not the best role model. You know, we really need to be empowering each other. We need to be working as a team a lot more than individually. Mm-hmm. I mean, these women, don't get me wrong, they broke the glass ceilings. Mm-hmm. They are captains of industry. They're fantastic. But I personally didn't really want to be that seen as that super tough person anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think it's partly because my confidence grew. You know, I think it's that you had a senior management role. I was able to develop people. I actually loved developing people. I got more pride from seeing somebody I had helped to grow, given them training, put them in the right position for them. And just watching them fly Mm -hmm. was beyond exciting. I have to say my proudest moment, I was involved in in recruiting when I was in the magazine business and my graduate trainee pick, who I had to fight for to join the company and she became my mentee and she became the CEO of our company and is now the CEO of SoulCycle, a woman called Evelyn Webster. And um, it just makes me so happy that she she would have made it anyway, Mm -hmm. but I like to feel like I'm sure she came across several women Mm -hmm. uh, like me on the way who hopefully we all gave her a, a help, helping mm-hmm. hand. And then I think finally, just in the sort of 2000s and beyond, you know, then I had kids, the developing people kind of went on steroids. You know, of course, I think when you become a parent, you want to help your kids believe that they can achieve whatever dream they want. Mm-hmm. And that's where my career is now. It's much more about developing people, trying to level a playing field and getting less fortunate Um people into colleges and into jobs that they want to have. Mm-hmm. I think if just to sort of backpedal a bit, I think if people looked at me and said, oh, you know, who is this woman? Who, what is her public face? I'd say, you know, she's competent. She gets things done. She's diplomatic. Um, but I really hope they'd also say she's really inclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm kind of a, a committee member or a committee chair who listens to people. I'd want to try to keep learning. I, I'm continually a work in progress. So... I'm sure then that you'll be happy to hear. I talked with your son, Jamie, and (laughs) he told me that the biggest thing that he admires about you is he called you a guardian angel, both in that you you put family first, uh, but that you're selfless. And that's not that doesn't just go for family. That goes for um, in your intro. You mentioned working with lower income school kids and and trying to get help them get into college and working with a crisis hotline. And so that is what he told me is one of your most powerful traits. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. I think that's the person he knows now mm-hmm. since I've become the mom. Yes, I've I have always been I think very perspicacious. I think he has that quality as well. You know, I think I sort of have a sense as to what people need when I meet them mm-hmm. and I love to hear about them. Um and I do, I think a lot of people, and I think a lot of people as we get older, wants to feel useful. 
you want to be useful to people and mm-hmm. so you create that role and that gone wrong that makes you a doormat and i think women particularly need to hear this is that, you know it is very easy for us to become the doormat you know mm-hmm. just thinking from the girl who had to go and get coffee in the meeting sort of you know stereotype you know we don't want to be a doormat but for sure i get an awful lot out of helping people and i love it mm-hmm. makes me happier it's like christmas day I want to be the person watching the person's face opening the gift I gave them. And I really, really don't mind at all about what I get. And I know people are lovely and generous, but truly seeing other people's faces when they're happy mm. makes me so that's, that's, I love that. And that sounds like also what makes you a great manager and a great grower <laughs> of <hope>. people. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, so we got that perspective from your son who definitely has a perspective, but that's obviously yeah. not who you are for your whole life. Tell me about, yeah. I want to know about this oil industry, this role you played there. Was that yes. your first job? Like, did you, who were you? Yeah, it was actually that? my second job. So out of university, I had done a summer job in a fashion company, which grew into something really fun because I was the only person there that spoke French. This sounds ridiculous. I was actually the house model. It doesn't make me sound like, you know, an attractive, beautiful person. (laughs) I was the right size to put on the clothes when the buyers came in to buy the clothes. So Mm. it wasn't a catwalk or anything glamorous at all. It was literally just, this is your summer job, stick these clothes on and we'll see what orders we get. And one day a French gentleman walked in and he didn't speak any English and I spoke French. Um, and the sales director's like, well, listen, you deal with him. I'm sure he's just a peon who's going to buy 10 things. I don't care. Well, he ended up being our biggest customer. And so I got a great boost in my confidence from one, being able to be a salesperson. And two, I was allowed to go to France to work with him and his company and then go to Hong Kong and Taiwan to get the clothes made. So I traveled, um, and I absolutely loved it. It was just such a fun job. And the irony is I'd read Middle Eastern politics at university, so it wasn't like it was particularly oh useful. <laughs> yeah. just happened to speak French, so that was, that was helpful. Um, but I got into oil trading because, you know, after a couple of years of doing that job, I could see that it was going to be the same thing again and again and again. There was no way I was going to go anywhere from that. And what, with what oil do you mean trade, by the same thing? The same thing. So, you know, you have the cycle of sales. So twice a year, Mm -hmm. the, you know, client comes in, they buy all the stuff, you go to Hong Kong, you place it with the factories, and you deliver it, and then you Mm -hmm. start again. And it wasn't that there was a job above mine, or a different job that sounded, there was something that I could or would want to get into. And, And it was owned by somebody who owned the entire company. And that was my boss. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to run out of steam on this. I could mm-hmm. keep doing it. It would be fun, but I'm going to run out of steam. And I was very ambitious and it was very badly paid. <laughs> so it was very glamorous, really fun, terrible money. And I had bought an, a, an apartment and needed to pay the mortgage. And I saw my brother um, was an oil trader and he was earning a pot of money. And I just thought, you know, I did Middle Eastern politics. He used to ask me all the time about backgrounds of certain countries and types of oil and whatever. And I sort of knew that. I thought, you know, I'll try and get a job in this business. I'll earn more money. And I think it'll be intellectually interesting. And you already had Um, some skills that were valued, you knew. Yes, I hope so. Certainly at that time. In the Mm -hmm. 80s, fewer people had maybe a useful degree to go into that Mm -hmm. kind of business. Um, And I went in. In the 80s, the way to get into these places was by being a secretary. 
So if you could go and work for the head guy, it was a little bit like being a chief of staff now. Yes, mm. you had to take, I didn't even do shorthand. I completely winged it. But basically, you should, you know, this guy would sort of bark orders at me and I took them down very quickly. And I literally used the old telex machines to send messages left, right and center. But the reason I went was at the interview, it was very well paid advert in the newspaper. When I went into the interview, he said to me, why do you want this job? You've got a degree. Why are you coming to be my secretary? And I said, mm -hmm. I want to be blatantly honest with you. I don't want to be your secretary, but I will be for a couple of years if you would help me become an oil trader. And he mm -hmm. said, absolutely, I'll do it. You know, I want to, you know, I, that will help me. I'll have a bright person working for me. You do all the sort of jobs I'm going to give you. And I promise you within two years, I'll make you a trader. And he actually did it within nine months. Within nine months, wow. I was beginning to trade. So he was very true to his word. And I have to say, from the second I walked into the interview onto a trading floor, I was totally bitten by the bug. Mm. I just saw the phones ringing and the people dashing around and the screens blinking. And I went, oh, my God, I'm on the set of Working Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Just and you just knew this was, this was the place knew, you needed to be. I, I knew it. I knew it. I thought it was super interesting. Um, it's not, for people who are thinking about doing commodities trading, of course it's a commodity and mm -hmm. there is now a lot of technical trading. In those days, there was a lot of physical cargo trading. You had to build relationships with the people in the Middle East or in Africa or wherever to get those cargoes of oil mm. that we then put into our refinery, or we traded a lot, we traded. And I was part of a team that built one of the first technical trading systems, which I sort of have to apologize for because it made the job more boring in many senses, uh. because you just work with numbers. Um, of course, there's still lots of great things about that job, but <laughs> um, it was one of those things that I, I really loved it, absolutely loved it from day one. It was great. And I have a question based on how you went from being a secretary to an oil trader. What exactly did yeah. you have to rely on your boss to help you with in order to become, to, to achieve that goal of becoming an oil trader? I think the number one thing was I had to make relationships with my other colleagues so that somebody in one of the office would want to take me on to mm -hmm. train me to do that role. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing. It's much easier when you're working for the chief executive and he was a very, very difficult man, um, that then their secretary or chief of staff or assistant, whatever you want to call them, that becomes a more important word because a role because you are the gatekeeper. Oh. And so a lot of people I got to know really well and people I, I liked and admired and respected. So I think there were enough of them that thought, you know, she's relatively smart and she's now met all these oil ministers and been to all these countries and you know, that could be quite useful as a junior on our team. Mm -hmm. So I think it was making those relationships. Mm -hmm. On the other side with my boss, as I mentioned, I alluded to, he was a very, very difficult man. And I think it veers on an issue women have. He, I saw him reduce grown men to tears. I was in meetings when he would scream and shout and they would literally burst into tears. It's a terrible feeling. Oh my God. It's abuse. Nowadays, I, I, I like to think you wouldn't get away with it. I'm sure it's still happening in various places. But the one time he turned and screamed at me, I said to him, if you ever do that again, I will walk out of here. We will be done. 
And I think he respected it. And I think he almost maybe at that point thought, you know, maybe she's ready. She's, Mm -hmm. you know, she's really pretty tough and has coped with me. And what I needed was for him to take one of my, the guy that became my boss and say, look, will you take her on? You know, just, just give her a break. She'll help you build this technical trading system. And she wants to be an oil trader. And the guy who became my boss, who is just a wonderful, wonderful man, said, yeah, you know, not exactly what I would have chosen. I kind of wanted an MBA. I kind of <laughs> wanted a statistician. I really wanted a good mathematician. But okay, I'll take this woman that doesn't have any of those skills because <laughs> she has some other skills. Mm. So You were able to use those other skills to your advantage. I was. I was. I don't know how different it is now. I was not pushy in that role. I could not have demanded to go work for somebody. That would not have worked. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to slow down, judge the people around me, and figure out after a, not not in a pejorative way, judge Mm -hmm. them. I mean, to get to know them enough to know who would genuinely good, helpful people and who I needed to become confident with, you know, to to demonstrate to them that I was a competent person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was the person every single night between about midnight and two in the morning, I had to pull together the reports that showed exactly where we were in the market, what our market exposure was, how much money we were gaining and losing. It was an incredibly responsible position. And there were times where I was sent a report by somebody very senior that just didn't make sense. I could have just plunked that report in front of my boss after collating it, but I would often go back to them, wake them up in the middle of the night saying, did you really buy four cargoes of Brent? Did, you know, is it right? Am I reading this right? And they go, oh my God, Caroline, you've completely saved me. No, I didn't. Um, And I think it's those sorts of that incredible trust position that you have and that bond you build not just with people above you, but with my peers mm-hmm. that that got me got me through all those hoops to be able to become a trader. Wow. Um, I know nothing about the goings-on of the oil industry. What have been some of your favorite parts? Do you have any favorite memories from it? Oh, gosh, I have so many. I have so many. Here's, well, here's a life lesson for listeners that, <laughs> that I really learned from this. So I mentioned that my brother was an oil trader. Mm-hmm. He was with our arch nemesis. So there were two privately owning, owned trading companies. I was with one, he was with the other. Um, and he and I never ever discussed business. And indeed, in my interview, my I said this to my boss, because I usually you wouldn't get the job because of that, because mm-hmm. it's just too much of a risk. And he said, Look, I'm going to give you enough rope. If you hang yourself, it's on you. So I never ever did discuss business with him. But I was in Oman one day, and my boss was being really difficult. I had been up for three days straight, literally four, five, three, four, five in the morning, getting all this work done for him. And he was being really, really difficult. And I went downstairs in the hotel to grab a quick bite with his flight crew. He had a, he had a jet, and you know, my part of my job was to get them the hotel to stay in and whatever. And I joined them for dinner, and I was able to... Um, confide in them because they knew how difficult he was. I knew it would go no further. And I just said, oh my gosh, he's just killing me. I'm exhausted. You know, I've got this so much work. He's being awful. And they were very sweet, gave me an extra glass of wine, all was good. Mm. And as I got back into my hotel room that night, 
the phone was ringing and it was my brother on the phone. And he said, you be careful who you talk to in hotel restaurants. And it must have transpired (laughs) that somebody from his company had probably heard us at the next table and said, oh, guess what? This guy's in town. He must be doing a deal with so-and-so. There's this woman shooting her mouth off about him. Oh, my God. God, I'm cringing just telling you a story. I'm absolutely cringing. But (gasps) be tactful. Be careful who you talk to. Be careful where you talk to them. (laughs) It was was just petrified. That's the bad memory. I think the good memories, I had. I have so many good memories, you know, doing the first trade, that feeling of terror, you know, these are hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars at risk if I did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely terrified and had incredible help from a couple of colleagues just willing me on the other side of the phone with their thumbs up and <laughs> checking the numbers with me and so on. Um, doing that trade was just like being on fire. That was great. And I think that I alluded to being in West Africa and, you know, the armed roadblocks and so on. Mm-hmm. I think I did that trip with another oil trader, a very, very experienced oil trader. But we were definitely in dangerous and difficult situations in some cases. I remember in Abidjan, in the Cote d'Ivoire, um, literally sprinting to our meeting because of, you know, who was out on the street and weaponry and that sort of thing. You know, it was it was kind of scary. Um, and there were other fantastic, gentle, lovely people in the Cameroon and Senegal, amazing places. But it was a tough trip. You by no means were safe. By no means had the people I was seeing necessarily seen a woman in the role. Mm. And I was just incredibly proud of myself for doing the trip and and beginning to work on deals with people and making some relationships. Um, completely out of my comfort zone so I think that was that was exciting and to see those countries I mean Niger you know sitting in a tent with a tribal chief in Niger mm-hmm. was pretty amazing I think those are those are some highlights wow is can that still be done today do oil traders today still do yeah. those yeah. events yeah those things? definitely yeah, definitely I think you know the vast majority of the oil market you know obviously is is you know buying cargoes of oil to send into refineries and Mm -hmm. trading it as a commodity and that you're sitting behind a desk to do that but Mm -hmm. you need to have relationships with people in charge so you know my boss had uh, relationships with various middle eastern oil ministers as as most trading companies would and so would exxon and bp and so on and um so the relationship building piece is definitely still there it is very Mm -hmm. very difficult for a woman in that role there's no question about it um, but I think that that relationship building in different countries, very different countries from the U.S., can still be done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long haul, and you have to really, really enjoy that side of the work. You know, it's, I think it's very much easier sitting behind a desk flipping cargoes, mm-hmm. much easier. But um, I thought it was very challenging, very interesting. Wow. So... This is Caroline Tuff right here. Um, <laughs> exactly. 100%. Shoulder pads are out. Exactly. <laughs> Let's pause here. So we just heard this story of how Caroline went from being a store model to flying around the world to then being a secretary to an oil trader and how random skills like speaking French plus relationship building got her this far. 
I want to take a moment to highlight something Caroline did amazingly well that earned her respect in a tough industry. She took personal responsibility for everything that passed through her. I loved the story of how she would triple check reports in super late hours. She would find errors. And even if she had to bother senior level people to fix them, that's how she actually earned their trust. It wasn't bothering them. She was preserving their reputations. And of course, that's just one way that she built relationships in the oil industry, which would lead her to become a full-on oil trader in just nine months. So we'll talk more about how Caroline got into oil trading at the very end. But up next, we'll hear a different side of her about her love of growing people, like she mentioned in the beginning, and how this authentic desire of hers made her extremely valuable in her next job in marketing. Before we jump back in, I want to try my own hand at marketing and share with you a brand new sponsor of Statement Mondays, Athletic Greens. So I've been looking for a nutritional supplement because I just know that I'm missing things in my diet, especially when the demands of podcasting alongside my full-time job get stressful. Athletic Greens has been able to help with that. It's a comprehensive all-in-one greens powder developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. It's specifically engineered to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and your body's needs, including gut health, immune support, energy, and recovery. And in case the name throws you off, no, it's not just for athletes. It's actually part of the daily nutritional regimen for thousands of top performers and go-getters worldwide. And I don't know about you, but I definitely count myself in that group. I work my butt off to produce this podcast every week, and I don't sacrifice quality for anything. One scoop of Athletic Greens and a glass of water every morning has made sure that I don't sacrifice quality in my own health along the way. It's helped me sustain energy for longer, and I also start the day hydrated when I normally forget to drink water. So... You can get in on this, too, by just visiting athleticgreens.com slash statementmondays to get this daily all-in-one superfood powder and, of course, to also support Statement Mondays. And guess what? They're also offering my audience five travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D free if you use my link with your purchase. And again, that's athleticgreens.com slash statementmondays. So now let's jump back into our interview with Caroline. In the beginning, you mentioned that you then moved into a totally different sector and yeah. you couldn't be, or you, you didn't feel right being tough like this anymore. A lot of the yeah. persona that you developed in the oil industry doesn't, didn't fit. I think you, yes. you said it was an advertising or a magazine. Yes. Yeah, so we had, I, we took a decision. Um, I met my wonderful husband and we got married and he was offered a really interesting role with a bank in Australia. And we just took a decision that this would be a wonderful adventure for both of us mm-hmm. and we should do it. And so I, I quit my job oil trading, uh, went off to Australia, had an absolutely fantastic time and actually essentially took a year off because of the work permit situation, you couldn't just move to Australia and grab a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it took several months to get that. And, and my husband's project was only a year-long project. Mm-hmm. So I had a whole year to think about what I wanted to do and to be selfish. Um, and I absolutely loved it. It was such a luxury. And I sort of decided that trading, as wonderful as it was, and as interesting as it was, to me had become superficial. 
And it was, I, I don't want to touch like, you know, sound as though I wanted to cure the world and fix the world and do things. But I just felt like I wanted to produce something as opposed to just cash. Yeah, because originally um, that was what you saw in it. It was like, money. Oh, it makes money. It was money. You know, it's great to, to feel comfortable and to have earned enough mm-hmm. to, you know, help you to start paying off your mortgage and stuff. But I just wanted to do more. And so when we came back to England, just through a very lucky um, series of circumstances, once again, based on relationships, a friend of mine was a headhunter and she had this job and said, oh, they're looking for somebody really good at marketing. And I noticed that you were a crude oil marketing representative. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's not marketing, actually, but let's, you know, let's just not go there. Anyway, I got the interview, met, met my boss, and, and he, he took a chance on me. Um, and yes, it was we're in a different time now. We're at the very beginning of the 90s. Some of the glass ceilings have been broken. Um, and I was in a world of women, mostly women. Although I have to say my department was still quite male dominated because we were marketing planning. So we were um, the tools to try and forecast where magazines, magazine sales would come from and how to maximize magazine sales. So things like Marie Claire and you know, big mm-hmm. household name magazines. And for my the first time in my life, I had a big team of people. I had a department to begin with, a department of about 40. Mm. And I could see immediately some absolute stars, you know, some real stars who maybe got stuck in that position just because of, of bad luck or, you know, they hadn't had some, a little bit of training they needed or one little weak area hadn't been strengthened or pointed out to them. And it was so exciting to see how... People actually, if you if you help, give them a little step in the right direction, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of advice, or just expose them to maybe slightly more risk or something slightly different, they could fly. And that, to me, was the reason I went to work every day. That was so exciting. How did you did you just make a point to meet with everyone? How were you able to pick out these stars? So my first, they, they thought this was so weird. So I mentioned to you that it was a marketing job. I was the marketing planning director. Mm-hmm. I didn't have an MBA. I'd never done any marketing. Selling crude oil is not marketing. Mm-hmm. It just that happened to be in my title. And I remember they asked for a marketing strategy paper when I first arrived, the company. And I rang my husband, who does have an MBA, and mm-hmm. said, what's a marketing strategy paper? <laughs> went, well, it's white with blue lines. Bye. You know, and completely left me on my own. <laughs> Oh, my God. And I just, you know, looked at the market, looked at what we had and, you know, presented a plan, which luckily the board thought was super innovative and yes, we'll do it. And that was in, I think, you know, before I'd even joined the company, that's what I was asked to do. The minute I joined the company, I made one hour appointments with every single one of the 40 people Mm -hmm. from the three secretaries up to my five direct reports, all of them. And every single one of them, I said, where do you want to be? You know, you're doing this now. What do you want to do? And there was one guy, for example, lovely guy doing a very good job in marketing who wanted to be a salesman. He wanted to, to do sales channel management and I don't know if maybe he had just not felt brave enough to mention it to the sales director or what had happened, but I just immediately went over to the sales director and said, look, you've got this great guy, Mark. He wants to be, a, he wants to be in sales. Bingo. The next day it was done. And some of my colleagues said, well, why would you give up a good guy? Now you've got to hire somebody. I'm going to pay him. You know, no, he's got two people working for him. One of those people for sure can do the job. Mm-hmm. You know, It wasn't that difficult, but it, I think it was an old company 
maybe they'd sort of, some people had got slightly stuck in a rut. You know, when I joined, there was a guy in my department who had been there since before I was born. You know, this was <laughs> old fashioned. And just taking a different view where you are led by the people who work for you, mm-hmm. um, it, it brought us a lot of success due to those people, not at all due to me. It was entirely due to these stars who just took us to the next level in, in magazine marketing, literally the next level. They were incredible. Wow. That's a testament to how much of a difference it makes to uplift people, whether or not they're below you, you know, in a chain or not. It, yeah. it sounds like it makes a big difference, both in your own reputation. I'm sure people valued you for the value that you saw in others. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I don't even really know. I think they, maybe this is very superficial. They valued me because we delivered as a department. Mm. And so we were able to exceed any goals that anyone had set for us. Mm. But that was because of those people mm-hmm. that worked for me. So I'm not necessarily sure that they would put two and two together. I mean, mm-hmm. I was always putting my people up for industry awards because they really deserved them. And every time somebody would win an award, I'd send it around to the board and I'd say, you know, look at this a fantastic guy. Look what he's just got. Look at this girl. She's got this. You know, and I think they'd kind of, I don't know, that they ever really almost reacted to that particularly. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was just vindication. You know, this person deserved a step up. Mm-hmm. Um And most of them got it, which was very exciting. So before we wrap up with my final questions, I would love to also hear a little bit about the things that you're recently doing. I think you said right now you're helping with a a hotline. Yes. So there is a fantastic uh, text line called Crisis Text Line. I started working for them in the UK, although it is an American organization. It is is absolutely wonderful. It is a text line for anybody who is in crisis. Mm -hmm. They can just text a number, and I'll give you the number in two seconds, because I would love you to mention that. And they can talk to somebody who's a trained crisis counselor. Mm -hmm. We are not counselors in terms of psychologists or psychiatrists, um, but we are trained to work with people in crisis. Mm -hmm. And the whole theory is that you let people be heard, you let people talk, you help and I hope in some way empower them to come to a solution themselves and bring them to some kind of a cool calm. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the best things I've ever done. And I think what it really did for me is to know the power of listening. So the importance, people need to feel heard. Mm -hmm. They need to feel that their feelings are real. You know, some people say, oh, just pull yourself together. There's no such thing as depression. Get over it you know, your feelings are real and you deserve to have them acknowledged. And we can help maybe brainstorm ways to feel better or sometimes just talking to somebody is all they need. Um, And so I do that. I only do that for four hours a week. It is, I think, the best four hours I use. And I'm convinced that I get more out of it than the people I'm talking to. It's a wonderful organization. And I would urge anybody who's got four hours spare to go ahead and uh, and find out about this. And I see you. You're looking um, for the number. <laughs> okay. And I found the number. It's 741741. Crisis text line. Mm. 
you'll get great people. Just to let you know as well, if you happen to be in England and you go to Shout, which is the equivalent, is Prince William is actually a crisis counsellor. Wow. So you don't just not need necessarily talk to normal people like me. You might get to talk to a prince. <laughs> and can anybody become a crisis counsellor? Do you need a yes. certain background? Oh, that's yes. lovely. Yes, nope. No, you have a, an application form. They just want to know that you are a listener and that you believe in, in what they're offering. Yeah. And then you do 40 hours of training. And um, that, as the Brits used to say, will sort the men from the boys, yeah. where, you know, it can be quite hard, a lot of role play conversations, but it really will totally equip you to help somebody, even if they literally are self-harming or suicidal. Mm-hmm you all know how to deal with that. And of course, you have incredible supervision. So there are supervisors mm-hmm. on your back the whole time. So you're fine. Wow. Um, and so to switch gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier that one of the most fiery moments uh, while you were trading oil was that first trade that you made. Do you have any memorable moments aside from that one, throughout any point in your career that you felt totally invincible? So I was thinking about the invincible idea. And I mean, there's a couple of things that happened that, you know, I think you'd be horrified by. I was actually in a plane crash at Hong Kong Kai Tak Airport, the old airport in Hong Kong, where when you came in, you literally could see people hanging out their laundry. You were that close to buildings. And I was on a British Airways flight. It was in my fashion business day. So I was 21 years old. And I had taken two suitcases of samples from the Hong Kong and Taiwan factory so I could take them back to my French client. And as we took off, the plane went into a flock of birds and the bright two wings burst into flames. And the plane, we're literally just off the runway and the plane is veering towards Hong Kong Island. I can see it like a slow motion picture. And there's a couple of sweet Australian newly married couple next to me, first time on their trip going to England for their honeymoon. And I said, don't worry, this happens all the time. It'll be fine. (laughs) And all I could think of is if I don't make it back to England with those samples in my case, my boss is going to be so angry. (laughs) I didn't think about the danger at all. It was one of those somewhat surreal moments. And we had an incredible captain who gained control, you know, dumped the fuel, brought us back into landing. It's foam all over the runway. It's in all the newspapers. Of course, you know, my family's hysterical. And I just think at that point in my life, I realized nothing was going to phase me. I was not one of the people screaming. I was definitely the one of the people totally calm, totally kind of keeping check of the sweet couple next to me. Um, You know, it just gave me a huge sense of confidence. That you know, if you can deal with that, you can probably deal with most things. Wow, what? Um, but why didn't that phase you? I mean, that was so early in your career. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I don't. I think you, it could phase somebody of fifty wow. or sixty as well as somebody of twenty. I think you're either that person or you're not. Yeah. And do you have a life motto? Do I have a life motto? Crikey, that I've never thought about. Um, I don't really have a life motto. I do think that I have self-belief. I do think I have, I am self-confident and I think that does come with age for sure. The self-belief different than self-confidence? I think it is. I think it's much deeper. Self-confidence, I think you can, this is your heels, I think. This is your, you know, what, what can you 
be confident about you know you, the way you appear yeah mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing to say but it's really still true if there's something that gives you some confidence go with it if that mm-hmm. means going to the gym go with it if that means controlling you know one area of yourself that used to be out of control in any way shape or form that can give you self confidence mm-hmm. self belief i think is much much deeper um i think it comes with challenges in life knowing that you can get through them those can happen at any time uh, I am a huge believer in meditation in whatever form it takes, whether that be yoga or mindfulness or, you know, anything. I personally do transcendental meditation, but any kind of meditation is great. And I think that helps you with self-belief too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not at all a motto and I haven't answered your question. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> but it is a kind that of was, a core of my life. deeper than anything say. I would have imagined from a life motto. <laughs> <laughs> And then my final question for you is one that I ask all of my guests. And uh, as you know, the title of my podcast is Statement Mondays, Interviews with Women Who Wear Heels to Work, Heels in Quotes, because it's a metaphor for something that gives you strength, something outward, inward, a trait, an item. And so my question to you is, what are your heels? So my heels have changed, as our heels do in real life. You know, whatever you want to wear, it changes as it goes. And I think um, I mentioned self-belief and self-confidence are for sure heels you can keep your whole life. But I feel that I, to me, I'm always true to myself. So my heels, if you like, are this self-belief that I will be myself Uh, You know, I I like to think I'm a a cooperative, empathetic kind of person. Mm -hmm. If that approach doesn't work, then I'm possibly in the wrong place. I don't Mm -hmm. see that as, you know, oh gosh, I need to slink away. But I think that I've learned to put on heels that just allow me to go into a place and be myself, do the best I can and know that that is absolutely good enough. Mm. and and not feel that I have to back down I mean one thing I would say in my career I've seen this a lot I know you probably have seen it most people listening have there are people out there who can crush your confidence your Mm self-confidence it could be the wrong partner it could be certainly somebody at work get away from them find yourself a manager or a mentor or and definitely a partner who is a good person Mm-hmm. you know and when you come to pick a job pick the job that where you genuinely like the people because I think those people know what are what heels you're wearing mm-hmm. you know they will be eroded if you're in the wrong setting so it's important to find the right the right pair of heels in the right setting that was very well said yeah you can have your heels but they can give you strength yes. but if there's people around you that will try to hack away at that then sounds like you know what you can bring and you have no problem leaving, dropping whatever to go and be in a better situation where that can be recognized. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, it's so hard because, you know, we need, we rely on the money to pay our bills and whatever. But I would say is heels to me are make yourself the best you can be, you know, Mm -hmm. get the education. If you're lucky enough to be able to do that, try to learn from your colleagues and, and your bosses keep yourself in sort of as healthy as you possibly can do all the right things you know get time for yourself do all that that's heals Mm. everything else can be beyond your control and if you know if you're in the right setting 
you will absolutely shine. Um, but, it, you know, if, if you're not shining, it may not be about you. You know, mm-hmm. it really might be that you're in the wrong setting. Don't I, I hate to see people who've had their confidence crushed because they've literally worked in the wrong setting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for interviewing with me today. You're welcome. It was lovely to meet you, Natalie. I think you're doing an awesome job. Well done. Thank you. That was Caroline Cuff. There are so many things that we could talk about here, and part of me just wants to let this interview speak for itself. But I think it would be nice to wrap it up, tie a bow on it, uh, around the idea of knowing when to bring out her toughness and how that morphed and helped her build powerful relationships and make herself and others more valuable wherever she went. So let's start with oil trading. The most straightforward moments where her toughness shone, at least for me, was with these armed roadblocks on her travels to West Africa. I mean, you also just don't hear that from a, you know, normal work trip very often. But more subtle Caroline Tuff really is apparent when we think about how she got into oil trading. Given her lack of experience, she found a door that was open to her, which was joining as a secretary, and she walked right through it. She did what was asked of her, and in that time, got the right people on her side, which would propel her into the role she did want. So she wasn't tough necessarily by way of being outspoken or pushy. She was a kind of silent determination. And let's also not forget her reaction to unacceptable treatment from her boss. Her toughness came out front and center when she said never again and declared what she was not willing to endure. So it's not about what she could handle. It's about the bravery to stand her ground. And as we heard in the interview, all these elements of her toughness led her to become a very successful oil trader, especially as one of the only female ones around. Okay, enough on oil trading. We focused the second half of the interview on her next role in marketing, where she said she had to turn down this toughness a notch. She was no longer in a position of needing to stand up for herself, and it would serve her better to instead appear approachable as a leader of people. And I actually, I really love the way that she said it of taking a different view where you are led by the people who work for you. And I actually think she applied her toughness in new ways by standing up for people in her reporting chain and giving them opportunities where they would be most valued. So this ties into a pretty big and important idea that you become valuable if you make other people's jobs better or easier. We touched on this a bit in the pause as well, with Caroline pointing out miscalculations in reports. And in that case, she was improving the jobs and reputations of people higher up, which is opposite from her marketing job, right? Well, maybe not totally opposite, because both serve to make the people around her happier, more valued and valuable, and as a result, make the whole company more effective. So, okay, ways I've tried to employ this in my own role is looking for things I can take off my manager's plate, for example. So lately that's meant leading some of the product pieces of my projects and not just the engineering. So like coming up with milestones and analyzing metrics from things we release. So these things expand my own skills And it also frees her up to work on things concerning the whole product we're building or things that only she can do. So my helping her really makes her whole team more effective. 
back to Caroline. There's lots to take away from this interview, but I think the main bigger pieces are knowing when to dial up and to dial back, a trait like being tough, and then also growing your own value by making other people's jobs easier or making them more valuable. That and just being a generous, good person and lifting up others. All right, so that's all I got. And Statement Mondays is at 49 ratings in the Apple Podcasts app. I think you should be our rating number 50. Please, please give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And even better would be to leave a review. Just search Statement Mondays in the Apple Podcasts app and scroll down to the bottom. Thank you. And remember to be bold. Today is Statement Monday. I'm Natalie Munster, my intern is Mallory Pilon, and my audio engineer is Martin Munster. You can learn more about me and Statement Mondays at statementmondays.com or follow us on Instagram at Statement Mondays. I'd love to hear what you think and how you have been bold lately, so please get in touch. I'll see you next Monday. Bye!